This is Annie Grace, and you are listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This episode is sponsored by The Alcohol Experiment, a free 30-day challenge designed to interrupt your patterns, give you control, restore your health, and put you back in touch with the version of you who doesn't need alcohol to cope, relax, or enjoy life. More than 220,000 people have already tried The Alcohol Experiment for themselves and have seen improved sleep, increased happiness, reduced anxiety, and so much more. Join thousands in this inspiring, hopeful, and exciting program where you examine your beliefs and reconnect with the best version of you without ever feeling like you're missing out. Start today for free at alcoholexperiment.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace and welcome to the Snake Environment Podcast. Today, I am super excited about a guest we have. We have Elizabeth Vargas. She's actually an Emmy award-winning journalist, the author of the New York Times bestseller Between Breaths, which is a memoir of panic and addiction. She broke barriers when she revealed that she had alcohol use disorder during a televised interview in 2014. And today she candidly shares her story to help and inspire others. She's also a proud board member of the Partnership to End Addiction and national nonprofit that provides families with personalized support and resources and all sorts of amazing stuff. And she also hosts a podcast called The Heart of the Matter with Elizabeth Vargas, where she gives guests the opportunity to share their personal candid stories, which is amazing. So I'm so excited to have Elizabeth here with us today. Well, welcome, Elizabeth. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Annie. It's so nice to meet you. I've been a fan of you and your podcast for a long time. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That's amazing. So why don't you sort of take us back to um, the beginning in your story? And your story is so interesting, and I'm, I'm so excited to hear it directly from you, which is just going to be thrilling. But I'd love for you to just back way up to your childhood, your first drink, and sort of let it unfold for us. Well, um, I'm an army brat, so um, I grew up almost completely overseas, um, and we moved a lot. It was a very nomadic existence, um, so that there really, like, every single thing um, in my life changed pretty dramatically every year or two. You know, we would move to a different country or a different house or a different army base. I had different teachers, different friends, different neighbors, um, all that to say that the only constant in my life was sort of my nuclear family. And um, for a kid who was anxious as I was, it was um, looking back, um, at least, I, don't, I, I can't say if it actually fed my anxiety, but it definitely made it so that nobody really ever had the chance to notice it. Mm. And pull me aside. Um, I started having, I was always anxious. Um, but when I was six years old, my dad went away to Vietnam. And during that year, he was gone. I had daily massive panic attacks. Um, you know, and now in hindsight, it's very, you know, of course, you know, my father's away at war. My mother is leaving for work every morning before I go to first grade. And I had a tremendous, um, you know, abandonment and separation anxiety. And, but my mom didn't do anything. Like she never even said like, what's wrong, which, you know, shocked me. I didn't even realize that until years later, you know, in my adulthood when I was in rehab and I said, what did you say to me to comfort me during those panic attacks? And she said, well, nothing. I didn't know what to do. So, um, was it like just crying? Like how? Oh, 
I would cry and sob and beg and plead with her not to leave me. And I would hold on tight to her um, clothes, whatever she was wearing and force her to drag me as she walked to the car every morning because, you know, I was desperate for her not to leave me. And, um, you know, this was a time um, we were in Okinawa at that point. Um, it was a staging area for a lot of the American troops going into and out of Vietnam. And, you know, we weren't even helping Vietnam vets with PTSD and all their mental health issues. Nobody was certainly helping the children of these right. vets. So, um, so yeah, I had these massive panic attacks every single day and nobody, my mom never did anything. And then she's pregnant, you know, she's only 29. She's pregnant. She had two young kids. She was, had her husband away at war where a lot of people were dying. And the night she went away to go give birth to my sisters, a neighbor came over to watch my brother and me. And I started to have another panic attack as she left to go give birth. And I jumped out of my bed and started running through the house to stop her and, you know, do my normal panic attack thing. And the neighbor lady stopped me and looked me very closely. And she said, what is the matter with you? Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I realized that my um, anxiety was something I needed to hide and felt like mm -hmm. it was something very shameful. And from then on out, everything I did, I, I tried very, very hard to keep it hidden. Um, it's actually incredibly amazing that I didn't turn to alcohol before I did for my anxiety, but I was such a control freak. I still am. Um, that the thought of being drunk and out of control terrified me. Um, in high school, I would pretend to be drunk. I would take tiny sips of alcohol because it, it really, it scared me. And I didn't drink at all in college because the only thing around was beer and I hated beer. And so what I really didn't start drinking until, um, and I white knuckled my way through childhood, adolescence, college years, um, keeping my anxiety a secret and never telling anyone um, about it. Um, and then when I started working in television news, my first job, you know, it's a very high pressure job. Um, and it was sort of a tradition um, after the newscast that we all like, you know, scrambled all day long to put together. And we would all go to um, a local bar and have a drink and toast our failures or commiserate over getting beaten by the competition. and. That was when I first discovered the power of a glass of Chardonnay for me. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my beverage of choice. Um, and having one or two of those instantly, the world was softer and rosier and everybody was smarter and prettier and more interesting, including me. And all my anxieties melted away. And I think, you know, that was the hardest part for me um, because alcohol worked at first. Mm -hmm. It worked. It helped wave the magic wand over my life and make the anxiety dissipate if only for a few hours. That's so true. And I, I think that's, I mean, it's the trap, especially when we're drinking to, and we have this underlying pain, then it actually like science shows us it works differently in the brain. And so that first drink can be like, wow, where has this been my entire life? Yeah. Feels so this feels how life should feel. I, I shouldn't be feeling that way. I should feel this way. But of course, 
it isn't a lasting or sustainable solution. Um, when you were in sort of high school and college, you know, after the, the panic attacks of, of childhood and you started to hide it, it still manifests in some way. How was it for you? Like, how did it feel inside your body? You know, I had somebody ask me once, like, where in my body do I feel my anxiety? And I, I would say it's in my stomach. Me too. Um, there was a classic, I, I spent much of my childhood and adolescence feeling nauseous. Mm -hmm. um, I have a phobia about vomiting. Um, and I only learned much later from doctors that that's classic for children, a classic manifestation in children of anxiety is nausea. Um, so that's definitely where I hold it. Um, and, you know, ironically, like, I'm sure we'll get to this, you know, alcohol works at first, um, then it slowly stops working. <laughs> And then it boomerangs and actually fuels the anxiety. Um, you know, I, I love the, there's a saying that there were, I heard somebody say once that there were three stages to my alcoholic career, which is, uh, it's true for me, it's magic, medicine, misery. Mm. And the magic is those first few years when it works. Mm -hmm. um, and it worked for me for a while, a long while. Um, I had a very, very slow ramp up to, you know, alcoholic drinking and, then it was medicinal, I had to have it. And then it was just misery. It was like just misery and you're chasing your tail and why doesn't this work anymore? And maybe if I drink more, it'll work. And then I, then I drink more and, and then you feel, getting back to what I was just saying, really crappy, <laughs> you know, like not that nausea in the morning from the hangover it mirrors the nausea that I would feel just from my anxiety. So I had it all compounded. I mean, the end of my drinking was just such a terrible, miserable chapter of my life. Yeah. So let's go back to that first sort of news broadcast and everybody took you out for drinks to commiserate. And, and so pick up there. Well, that's, you know, it's a, I started in television news in the 1980s, um, late 1980s after I graduated from college. And I came on the tail end of, I mean, there were all sorts of, I always hear everybody say in my profession, there's a lot of, you know, substance use, abuse. And um, I think everybody says that about their profession, but it's certainly, it's certainly true of television news. There were legendary stories of people doing lines of Coke in the control rooms and, you know, hard drinkers, people drank hard. It was, um, uh, you know, there was enormous pressure to come in every day and, you know, with an empty board and figure out what all the, you know, several hours worth of, of news broadcasts would look like and then scrambling to put it all together and scrambling to get all the elements you need. And it's an intensely, brutally competitive business, not just between your station when I was in local news or later on my network when I was in network news and the others, but even within, sometimes the most intense, brutal competition was within the newsroom from my very you know, colleagues um, who were also competitors, you know, who got the best story, who got the lead story, who got the most time, who did the best job. Um, and sort of, you know, to the release valve for all of that, um, for so many of us was to go, you know, drink after the shows were over. Um, but, you know, it wasn't just then. Once I, once I realized the power of alcohol to make my life seem better and to make me feel the way I thought I should be feeling, uh, instead of the way I normally felt without it, you know, I drank every night. I would, you know, have, I, I guess there would be a handful of nights in my 20s and even 30s, you know, when I stopped drinking, but when I didn't drink a night or two, 
but I, you know, I would have a couple glasses of wine a night and I had a couple incidents in my twenties where I drank too much and really paid a price and thought, Oh my God, I can't do that again. Um, but I'll never forget. I had moved to New York. I was working for NBC and I was home just cooking. Like for the longest time, I couldn't imagine cooking without sipping wine. Yeah. I was cooking and I was all alone. And I remember the very first time I drank an entire bottle of wine all by myself and looking at the empty bottle and thinking, oh my God, how did I do that? You know, a decade later, it was like <laughs> the race to the bottom of the bottle. <laughs> so it was a slow ramp up for me. Um, and I never had anybody in my life tell me uh, until uh, I met my now ex-husband when we were dating, he was the very first person in my life. And that was in my late thirties to tell me I drank too much, that I had a problem with alcohol. Nobody ever said a word. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure I drank that differently from a lot of people, you right. know? It, it, I'm not sure it looked that different, but if I'm being very honest and I've been honest in doing a lot of work in my sobriety, when I look back, there were all sorts of little warning lights, you know, that were blinking throughout those two decades um, that I paid no attention to. Yeah, for sure. So when was the transition, would you say, can you put your finger on it from sort of magic to medicinal? And what did that look like? I think that, that was, that's a very fuzzy line. Mm -hmm. A clearer line is the transition from medicinal to misery. Um, I just know it, it, it just took more and more to get to the magical part. Like, whereas initially half a glass of wine would get me there, a couple sips would get me there, and then I would have a glass of two and that would be it. Um, but, you know, my drinking very slowly ramped up. It was several glasses of wine, it was two or three glasses of wine. Then it was finally, you know, when I got to New York. On occasion, it was an entire bottle of wine. Um, so that is, I just noticed that that line's fuzzy because it wasn't a clear definitive change, but it took more for it to work. Mm -hmm. Gradually, it took more and more for it to work. And I think, you know, after in my late 30s, I um, transitioned from NBC News to ABC News and um, I originally was on the morning on Good Morning America and you have to be up so early and be so disciplined that, you know, that um, I, I couldn't drink that much. But, and I, I write about this in my book, there was a, you know, that was a very, very hard year and a half that I came when I came to ABC. It was very difficult. And once they moved me off Good Morning America to the primetime news magazine shows, I was sort of liberated to you know, drink again as I would like. And I was dating somebody at that time who drank a lot and I just went right along with him. And um, that was, I think, when my drinking definitely took a hard turn. Um, it became much more excessive. I drank, I was drinking much more. And even though I was able, that was the time in my life when I would get up every morning and I would go to the gym and I would run on the treadmill for an hour and sweat out all the poison in my body and slug back liters of water and Gatorade to rehydrate. And I would go and work and do my job and do it really well. But I was drinking way too much. Um, and that was, it was shortly after that, that I met 
my ex-husband and he was the first person to tell me like, you've got a problem. Yeah, for sure. So then what were the, besides him telling you, were, were there other signs for you that you were like, okay, I'm, I'm thinking that something needs to change or how did that come? Yeah, yeah. Like going through an entire day of even with that hour in the gym, feeling absolutely miserable, going through the entire day, just waiting, waiting, waiting to be done with work so I could go have a glass of wine. And, and that's when it definitely was medicinal. I needed, that's when I noticed that the only thing that would help it was the beginning of that chapter where the only thing that would help me feel better after drinking so much the night before was more alcohol. Like for many, many years, I could go to the gym and I would be okay and feel just fine. It was during that, those many years there that um, it definitely tipped over into no matter what, it was like, I felt miserable. And of course, Annie, the effort it took to hide that to keep that a secret. I mean, long before I was keeping my drinking a secret, I was keeping my hangover as a secret, right. you know, pretending I didn't feel nauseous and shaky and dehydrated. And, you know, it, it, pretending I felt just fine when I felt absolutely miserable and I should have been somewhere getting IV rehydration or something. I mean, they didn't have that then. I know a lot of people do that who are, who still drink a lot. Um, you know, that, that was definitely, the medicinal part. It's tipping into the misery part of drinking. Yeah, I remember a time when I was in London and we'd all been out drinking the night before and I felt so bad during the day and I just couldn't get it back together, worse than I'd ever felt. And I, I, yeah. I like a proud, pride myself on, no, I have a high tolerance, I can handle it. And I remember walking to sort of the corner shop and like looking at those little mini bottles of wine at about 11 a.m. and being like, okay, just going to buy and just like, if I just drink one of these, I'm going to feel better. We'll just take everything away. And I was like about to check out and I'm like, am I going to do it? Am I not going to do it? Am I going to do it? Am I not going to do it? And I think I did it. I'm pretty sure I did it, but I remember it being such a, like, am I going to drink during the day to help combat this yeah. hangover from the night before? Yeah, it's really bad. And you know, the thing of it is that's so surprising is I went through that and eventually after many years, there were days when I did have to do the same thing. Like, and I'm so, I, I have my biggest issue now in sobriety is dealing with my own shame over mm -hmm. what I did when I drank. Um, but I too found days that were so bad that literally the only thing that would help me was to go get some wine from you know a, a store and, and drink it at 11 a.m because nothing else would do, nothing else would work. And, um, and it's, what's amazing to me is what we normalize when we drink like that, like, you know, it, it, but I think what it is, is it's a, some sort of weird survival mechanism that kicks in. Like, I just have to feel better. I just yes, have to feel better. Time. Just gonna get through this one day. I just gotta get through one this. Time. Yeah, and, um, and I, you know, there was no part of me that said, I need to get help. I need right. to talk to somebody. I need to stop doing this. I mean, the thought of stopping was, you know, one of the things I used to do at the very end in the definite misery chapter of my drinking is I would get up and I would feel so horrible and look so horrible. I would record videos to myself in the morning, pleading, do not drink tonight to play for myself later on in the day. And um, I would delete them all 
I, you know, I never followed the, you know, within hours, all my deals with God and, you know, um, pledges to myself had vanished in an, in yet another glass of wine. Yeah. It almost feels like a, like a, a dividing line in your brain where it's like so many promises, like you're just, it, you just know the truth for yourself. And then all of a sudden that's just gone and it doesn't even feel different. Um, yeah. And it's, it's so amazing how you can live a life that feels, you feel okay in that, in the drinking, even though like there's part of you that's just like screaming on the inside, like just stop. So. Yeah. I so, don't know. I don't know at the end how, what, what part of me ever felt okay. I don't think in the end, the last few years, it was ever any part of me that felt okay. Mm-hmm. I think at that point I was drinking to forget how not okay I was. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So then what brought about change? Oh gosh. Um, there were so many things that brought about change. Um, were so many things that in my life that demanded change and yet I still um, refused to give it up. It took me years to of trying before I, and I say trying with quote marks because I, I don't, you know, I just, I could not, I kept saying, where's door number three? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> I don't wanna stop drinking. I can't continue on the way I am. Where's door number three? You know, where it just, I can go back to the way it was when it worked. Um, I ended up going to um, a really great rehab after having, at this point, I was just off a cliff with my drinking. Um, And it was, it was actually, it's funny. This was, they had us doing a lot of writing And I looked recently, I kept the book in which I did all my, you know, writing assignments. And it was, it was really good, like what they had us doing. And, and yet, you know, I left that rehab and, you know, they were like, do 90 and 90, like 90 meetings in 90 days. Um, And I was like, what? I, I, I can't do 90 meetings in 90 days. I have, I have a job. I have two kids. I have, you know, which is a little window into my denial. Um, In other words, I went to the rehab and did did a lot of really good work at a really great place. And and then came home and, you know, did absolutely nothing, just worked. And unsurprisingly, I only stayed sober for about nine months. It's pretty good though. I mean, it was, it was a really, it was a good rehab and I came back and I went to work and I was feeling, and, and here's what happened things in my life were going pretty well and then something didn't go well mm-hmm. and I had nothing to fall back on I had no support system I had no program I had nothing um, I hadn't been going to meetings I hadn't been reaching out to other people I I did nothing to you know and um, very slowly I started sneaking drinks again and I, it got you know really bad really quick yet again and ended up with me being shipped off to a second rehab by my um, ex-husband uh, and a therapist that I will never forgive who had been given a free junket to this place. And it's a whole, it's actually a documentary I wanna do on this whole system where 
you know, these bad rehabs and how they stay in business. And anyway, it was a terrible experience. <laughs> and um, I look back on that as a, not only a wasted three, you know, two and a half months of my life, but um, something that I really have PTSD from, to be honest, it was a really terrible experience. And uh, came home and, you know, again, stayed sober for a little while, not because of that rehab, but because I realized my life was starting to really go seriously off the rails. And then, you know, drank yet again. I mean, I, I counted days for like two and a half years mm-hmm. and I would throw away my sobriety over nothing. And, and I'm, you know, there are a lot of movements and programs out there. Um, and I think even you guys offer a, a program for moderate drinking, or if you, you know, if you're trying to stop and you, you relapse, it's no big deal, which I think is a huge thing. Relapse is part of recovery and we need to get the world to understand that. Um, but, uh, I would just throw away my sobriety thoughtlessly. I remember having to fly to London for business and sitting in the, you know, the first class lounge at JFK airport. And I had 60 days of sobriety and somebody came up and said, would you like something to drink? And I, without hesitating said, I'd like a glass of wine and threw it away, you know? Um, So I don't know, you know, I, there's a great book out there called Moments of Clarity, which are a series of essays from people on that moment, that white light moment, that moment of clarity when they finally said, I need to stop whatever it is I'm doing, alcohol or drugs. I didn't have a moment of clarity. I just, you know, I think I, I can tell you one thing. For me, everybody in my life going, you need to stop, didn't do it. Right. For me, what worked was everybody backing off. I had an interim sponsor at that point, and I did con- um, tell her one point. I, you know, I confessed to her that I'd had something to drink, and she was so non-judgmental. Mm. And she just said to me, "Well, maybe you're not done yet." Mm. And I, that was like exactly what I needed to hear, because everybody backed off and let me figure out. I have to stop this. There's just no upside. I'm exhausted by this. I'm exhausted by from the lying and the hiding and the, I just, I, I'm exhausted. I, I will take that step into the unknown. That step, it felt like a step off a cliff mm-hmm. without my parachute of comfort that was white wine. And, um, and I finally did it. And I've been sober, you know, many, many, many years, and I'm incredibly grateful for it every day. So amazing. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's really worth sort of unpacking a little bit that idea of, of relapse being part of recovery. So like in, in the community that I run, we actually, it's not, it's not about moderation as much as it's about accepting that nobody comes into this conversation wanting to stop. So saying, let's not make a goal that's based on your behavior, let's actually make a much more practical goal that's based on how you want to feel. Mm-hmm. So for me, my goal was I wanted alcohol to be small and irrelevant. I wanted to feel like I felt in college where I could have one or not, didn't matter. It was just, it was a non-issue. It wasn't taking up all this mental real estate in my brain. It was small and irrelevant. And so I was open to that meaning I would never drink again. I was also open to that meaning I could drink on occasion, but my goal wasn't based on the behavior or the drinking itself. And so if, if I approach it like that, then everything I'm doing is figuring out how to make alcohol small and irrelevant. 
instead of holding myself to the impossible standard of sobriety when I'm not done yet, right? When I'm still on the journey. And so we actually call um, drinking again a data point and mm -hmm. it's, it's real celebrated. So it's like, yeah, bring your data points back here because as long as you're here, we're gonna learn this together in a community of compassion and kindness and grace. So grace-based, science-led, real, um, real relationship where you're welcomed back. I was recently on Red Table Talk and I was behind the scenes when Kelly Osborne was filming her episode. And she had said that her women's group, uh, Gammy had asked like, well, do you have support? And Kelly said, well, actually during COVID when she relapsed her women's group, 90% of them relapsed and it, it wow. dissolved. And so the group wasn't there anymore. And I was just so sad for that because I was like, what we need is the group. <laughs> we need the group of yeah. women to all be relapsing together and like accepting and embracing it and not dissolving, right? So I, I love what you said that, you know, um, relapse is part of it. Like it, mm -hmm. it's part of the journey. It's, it's not the enemy. And I think that's really beautiful. I love that you call it a data point because that's actually exactly what it should be. Um, but mostly I love what you said about the goal being to make alcohol small and irrelevant because, you know, by the end of my drinking, those last few years, which were just a nightmare for me now, looking back, um, it was enormous, gigantic, and it touched and colored everything in my life for years. It was the exact opposite of small and irrelevant. And I think that's why I finally was able to stop was because I was exhausted mm -hmm. from the fact that it was hijacking every part of my life. Because even at the very end when I was not drinking like and doing crazy, you know, you know, doing things, nobody knew I was drinking. Um, and, I, I, and I was drinking so moderately, it was like I was back in my 20s, but it was the hiding and the lying infected every part of my life and, and I couldn't live with it anymore. I, you know, I, I, I just, I couldn't live with it. It was the opposite of small and irrelevant. It was massive and tinged every aspect of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where I lived for a long time too. And I remember one time like picking up my glass of wine and just looking at it and being like, this, yeah. <laughs> this fermented liquid in a glass, like <laughs> these like stomped on grapes, this is what I'm, I'm giving my whole life to. And yeah. yeah, and it is just that, but we also have to have just so much grace and compassion because one of the things that I think is, is really missing in the, in the conversation is the fact that your brain is doing exactly what it was designed to do. It's just gotten confused because alcohol, like any other addictive substance, has hijacked the circuits of your brain that say, this is what you need to survive. So the brain is saying, like in that, in that misery state, in that medicinal state, it's giving you signals that if you don't do this thing, you will die, you will not survive, you will not be okay. And so without understanding that we just judge ourselves. Like, why can't I be, I'm smart and controlling every other of my life. I'm Elizabeth Vargas, for goodness sake. Like, why can't I get this under control? And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm so passionate about is like sharing the science of like, no, actually the brain is, is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. 
it just was never supposed to be exposed to the levels of alcohol that are in today's drinks or the, the volume that's in the fishbowl wine glasses that we're currently using. And, and so we should stop with the beating ourselves up. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, after my book came out, Diane Sawyer and I did an hour-long special on the book. And, on, on, and I interviewed um, the leading doctor from the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse, um, and she actually told me that by the end of my drinking, my brain had been so high. First of all, she explained to me how the alcohol, which first initially soothed the anxiety, was now actually fueling the anxiety. And that at, toward the end of my drinking, she explained that in the last few years, I would need a glass of wine or two just to feel the way yeah. you, normal people, feel waking up in the morning. Like that's how hijacked your brain gets. And she also explained to me that people who are anxious, and by the way, 60% of women who are alcoholics suffer from anxiety. Mm. It's a much stronger link between anxiety and alcoholism for women than it is for men, double. Mm. And she said that for people who are anxious and trying to get sober, they relapse more often. So it's, it's, I think all those things are important for people to hear because I think a large part of the reason why people don't get help today is because of all the shame and stigma around the disease. And there are so many people out there who, I mean, I see it sometimes in my Twitter feed where, you know, I've had, I've had almost a, a decade of sobriety and I still have people say, yeah, go pour yourself another drink, Lib. You know, it's like, yeah, it, it, it's like, okay, well, like, you know, I don't know, like maybe it has to be 25 years of sobriety before people stop thinking that that's a cudgel they can use against me. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that there's a great misperception out there that, um, or misconception out there that, um, you know, if you try and get sober and you fail, we've got, we're pulling the plug on you and you're a lost cause. And we're kicking you out and we're firing you and we're, you know, you, and goodbye, you're done. Life is over for you, you know, whatever. And, you know, the va vast majority of people, the unicorns in the room of recovery are the people who stopped whatever they needed to stop the first time they tried. Very most people, yeah, most people, it's many, many, many times. Um, I've been to, I'm in, you know, recovery meetings with people who went to rehab 19 times. It, it's unbelievable. Um, and you know, all I can think of is good for them that they kept trying. Absolutely. Yeah. That should be right. Something. It does change your brain, and there's actual science to prove that. Yeah. My um, one of my sons, he's a little bit like he has more anxiety, and he and he's more afraid, and he's just more anxious in the world, and and things are harder for him. And he's the older one, so it's doubly hard because he sees Me his too, little brother. Exact same thing. Flying I through it all. Yeah. And, um, one of the conversations I have with him is that, look, bravery means feeling the fear. Like you're not brave if you never feel it. You know, you're not super strong if it isn't super hard, you know? So we actually celebrate these, we celebrate things that actually don't show us how difficult, like somebody going to rehab 19 times, like that's the strongest person in the room because yeah. they're still there and they're still engaging in the conversation. Um, let me ask you, uh, I know that from what I understand in your journey, especially being very much in the spotlight, you were sort of outed before you were ready. Is that? Oh, yeah. Um, 
somebody um, called the New York Post or the New York Daily News and um, and told them where I was. And I was in rehab at the point at that time. And, and I remember the president of ABC Press calling me and saying, you know, you have to issue a statement saying that you're, you know, an alcoholic and you're in rehab. And um, it was absolutely devastating. Mm. Um, I, I just can't even, you know, even after this many years of sobriety, I still struggle with my shame mm -hmm. um, and my guilt. Um, even though I can show great compassion and empathy toward others, you know, it's pe people, and I know I'm not the only one, other people I know I share in meetings that I'm in that they do the same thing. But to, at that vulnerable moment, um, to be forced to issue a statement to the world, and I had to call both my sons and, you know, tell them it's going to be in all the newspapers tomorrow. And I remember one of my sons saying, why does anybody care that you're in rehab? And wondering why he wasn't running the world, <laughs> you know, so... Um, yeah, it was very, very, very difficult. Um, everybody should have the right to do this, you know, without the entire world pointing and gossiping. And um, it was very painful. Um, so, but it, I, I don't think I would have written my book if I, if that hadn't happened. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have. Um, at some point, you know, um, and then I remember getting out of rehab and you know, then there were, every day there were more stories in, you know, oh, Elizabeth Vargas is back at work. Oh, Elizabeth Vargas is back on the air. And then I remember the president of, again, of ABC Publicity coming in and saying, you know, we, I was two days home from rehab mm -hmm. saying, um, you know, we, I, you should go on Good Morning America and do an interview with George Stephanopoulos and just, you know, nip it in the bud and everybody will stop writing about it. And I did, and I, I look back at that interview with horror today. Um, I can't believe, you know, again, that, that somebody, you know, who obviously hasn't ever had to deal with this issue, thought that was, a, you know, something that I needed to do. And, and I didn't have the strength or the knowledge to set healthy boundaries and say, I am absolutely not going on an interview on Good Morning America where I'm asked questions about my alcoholism, two days home from rehab, for God's sake, you know, um, it was a very vulnerable, difficult time. Um, my marriage was falling apart. I was learning all sorts of painful things about, you know, what had been happening in my marriage while I was away at rehab. It was very, very difficult. And to be basically forced to go on national television and give this interview, um, I should never have done that. And wish I hadn't. So it was very hard. It was very hard to have all that be so public well, at a time when I was very, very vulnerable. Well, we were just talking about, about, you know, there isn't strength without hardship. I mean, wow, like you are so strong and not that strong. I ended up relapsing after that, you know, that's, that is part of your story. And, and yeah the fire that I can see and feel inside of you to make this different for other people is just really amazing. Yeah, I do think, you know, that's the one thing that I, that I, the one, and I still 
feel like sometimes I have to, I have to polish that off to remember, you know, at, at some point, you know, then somebody came, a publisher came and said, why don't you write a book about this? And I was like, I don't want to write a book about this. I don't want to talk about this anymore. But I realized that so many parts of my story were already out there in public and maybe I should tell my story instead of letting everybody else tell my story. Um, and mostly I thought about how much other, especially women, other women's books helped me when I was struggling. That's the first thing I did when I was secretly thinking to myself, I think, I think this is a problem. And I started getting books, like wonderful books written by women who have gotten sober. And it was like the precursor to any kind of support group out there for sobriety. Um, the power of the group is listening to other people tell their stories and hearing that their stories aren't so different from your own story. You know, Anne Lamott has written beautifully about the head nod, you know, of, of you telling your story and seeing people nod their head, me too. Like there's enormous power in that. And, um, you know, I think there's, it's a two pronged thing. I would love to be able to help people feel less alone because I don't think I've ever felt so alone in my life is when I was, you know, struggling with this disease that was the loneliest I have ever been. I never want to be that alone in my life again. So telling us your story helps other people feel less alone and less singular and less unique. And once you hear that other people have walked that path too and have managed to get to a better place, you give them, you leave the, the breadcrumbs. This is what you can do. This is how you follow this path and get there. The other flip side of that is, you know, and this is through my work on the board of directors for Partnership to End Addiction. This is, I have my own podcast called Heart of the Matter, where we talk to a lot of people in recovery, as well as a lot of leading, you know, legislators and um, people in government who are helping change things. I really truly feel that we need to change the way society looks at the disease of addiction. We know that, you know, 10% of people who need help get it. That is shocking to me. We know that during the pandemic with an epidemic, not just of this disease, this coronavirus, we had an epidemic of anxiety and depression. We know that opioid overdoses skyrocketed and are off the charts. People self-medicate depression and anxiety and they can do it, you know, destructively. Mm -hmm. And I just think that people are too afraid to seek help. We are still in a very judgmental puritanical society where it's like you lack self-control, you are, it's your fault. I mean, we, I've seen the polling data. Right. There are like, there's a, nearly half the people in America think addiction is a moral failing. Mm -hmm. As long as that number stays that way, people who need help, won't ever be able to get the help they need. And it's, it's a travesty that we, that we judge so harshly people who are struggling. Mm -hmm. By the way, I don't know if you pay attention to this, but if you look at the New York Times bestseller list for the past, I can't even tell you how many months, it could be years at this point, look at the top 10 list of the books selling on the nonfiction list. The Body Keeps Score. Um, there's all these trauma books, like what happened to you instead of what's wrong with you, what happened to you, which is the way we need to turn our thinking around. Mm -hmm. It's not what's wrong with you, which is what somebody said to me when I was having a panic attack when I was six. 
And, you know, what my co-anchor in Chicago said to me, you know, at commercial break when I had a panic attack on live television, only with an expletive in there, you know, he was like, what the F is wrong with you? Um, we need to turn it around to what happened to you. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's so beautiful. It's so true. But it shows because all those books have been there for so many months mm -hmm. steadily that more and more people are suffering and are looking for answers. Um, and I think for us to judge so harshly to say it's a moral failing if you turn to a substance to ease the pain instead of asking how can we help your pain? Yeah. You know, I love that. You hold such a beautiful vision for this. I hope so. It's very, sometimes I feel like we're trudging up a very steep mountain and you know, you look up and you think, oh my God, I've only come this far. Yeah. But, um, but it's amazing when, like, what is it? One in 10 or one in, like, it's just a percentage of people that have to get it. And then the whole thing does reach that tipping point. I hope so. I mean, we know there are a lot of reasons why only 10% of people who need help get it. You know, it's stigma. It's the cost of treatment. It's, you know, um, it, it, the fact that many companies and families and spouses and children will say, okay, you have, you have one shot. Okay. Maybe two shots to get sober. But after that, I'm done with you. You're out, you know, eject. Um, you know, it's very, very difficult. Um, I remember there was an intervention for a colleague of mine at ABC news and they needed desperately to get her to rehab and they staged this whole intervention and they did all the stuff and had, you know, a, a place set up and ready to go. And then, you know, insurance stepped in and said, well, no, we, we will, why, why can't she go to an outpatient first? And why can't she, you know, the, the opportunity was lost because, you know, and an, somebody, an insurance company balked at covering, um, her treatment so well um elizabeth thank you for your time let me ask you the question that i always end these stories with which is if you were going to go back in time uh to elizabeth who was um who was struggling who had just first looked at that full bottle of wine she had drank who you know was wondering entering into the misery from the medication and you would tell her what life is like now what would you tell her Oh, that it's possible to live and be happy without alcohol. Mm -hmm. It's possible to, you know, wake up every morning and feel, <clears throat> feel just fine. Um, that whatever relief you're getting or think you're getting from that glass of wine, it's not worth the misery it is causing and it will only get worse. I mean, that is the thing that keeps me sober as well is the realization that you know because life doesn't magically get fabulous when you get sober I mean there's still many many hardships and difficult times and I've certainly had many of them and still have many of them but um a drink would only make it all worse yeah. and um I just couldn't imagine living life without that crutch. And I would just tell myself that um, it could be, it can be so much better. 
every aspect, just the way you were saying, how do you make alcohol small and irrelevant? And I was saying that at the end of my drinking, it was enormous and infecting every aspect of my life. Um, every aspect of my life has improved because I'm not drinking. My anxiety is better. It's much less, um, shockingly so. Um, I feel better. I'm not lying and hiding all day long. The anxiety and stress from that is gone. I mean, every, it doesn't make life magically better, you know, from the external factors, but I'm better able to deal with the challenges life throws my way because I'm not hungover, shaky, sneaky, guilty, lying, you know, um, it has made every aspect of my life internally better by removing it. And I have no doubt that if I were to start drinking again, for me, um, that it would very quickly devolve again. Mm -hmm. I know that because that was a gift for me. Those were my data points from my relapses. Um, I could drink moderately for a few weeks, maybe even a few months, and then right back to where I was, only worse. Mm -hmm. I have no illusions about the fact that if I were to pick up again, I might be okay for a month, six months, even a year, and then it would be worse. And I don't want to go back there. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't want to go back there. That's my data point. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. This has been amazing. And just, I appreciate so much you coming in and sharing your story thank with you, Annie. Thank you. And thank you, you know, as somebody in the recovery community, Thank you for all the work you do and, you know, in helping people figure out a way to compassionately get to that place of what's best for me without the judgment. Um, we have way too much judgment around this issue. And I think we need more people like you doing what you're doing to help change that. It's a big oil tanker we have to turn around. It's going to take a lot of people yeah. pushing, pushing and nudging in the right direction. Thank you. Have you tried the alcohol experiment? Okay, if not, drop everything and go to alcoholexperiment.com. This is a free 30-day challenge and it's designed to interrupt your patterns and put you back in touch with that best version of you. You remember, it was that version of you that's living your most joyful life, that version that didn't need alcohol to relax or have a good time, the one that's able to have more fun than ever. Again, this is a totally free challenge and it can change everything for you. So learn more and join me for a 100% free challenge at alcohol alcoholexperiment.com. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps me reach somebody who might need to hear this message today.